When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Caroline Crampton, standing in for your regular host, Helen Lewis. On this week's edition, George Eaton and Anusha Kalian tell us about Labour and the problem of getting young people to vote. Ian Steadman brings us news from the internet, where the founder of 4chan has stepped down. And Tom Gatti and I discuss Wolf Hall, the new TV adaptation of Hilary Mantel's novel. I'm here with Anoush Shakilian and George Eaton, and we're going to start with Anoush. You went on a road trip with Liam Byrne in Essex this week, I understand. Tell us what happened and why. Well, basically, last week Ed Miliband um, made this big speech talking about um, the plight of young people and how, um, you know, and, and how Labour is concerned about the fact that two million young voters have no intention of voting at the general election. It's something that the Labour Party um, want to aim for, getting these young people back into the democratic process. And so Liam Byrne is going on this, Liam Byrne, who is Shadow Universities Minister, is going on this road trip uh, this week around Essex and Estuary, England, where UKIP are taking hold, um, to speak to young people and to get their um, ideas of what they'd like to see Labour do. Um, because he's making a young people's manifesto, um, which they're going to publish by the end of February. So I went along with him and he was asking young people about their concerns about tuition fees, about apprenticeships um, and about work experience. Um, So it looks like uh, he's gathering quite a lot of ideas uh, to back up Labour's big higher education policy announcement that they're set to make at any time now. Ed Miliband said, watch this space. And so there's a lot of speculation about what that's going to be. I've heard different things. Um, One of the things that has come out before is that Labour will slash the fees down to 6,000. Or Liam Byrne is very keen on a graduate tax, but it looks like that's more of a long-term aim rather than something they'll announce before May. Um, George, what have you heard on that? Well... Pretty much that, that um, you know, Ed Miliband's made it clear for a long time that he wants, in his words, a radical offer on tuition fees and actually said during his leadership campaign that he wanted a, a graduate tax. Um, but I think I, I don't think it's something that Labour you know, envisage being able to, to promise to introduce in one term. I think simply because um, it would it would be so disruptive in terms of, of what it would mean for universities' immediate funding streams. But we did see back in 2010, 2011, this is an issue that mobilises vast numbers of young people. Mm. So in that sense, Liam Byrne is working in the right area. And I saw some of your pic. You've written a very good long article about this. You can get on newstatesman.com. Um I saw some of the pictures you took, particularly that one of um, Liam Byrne at the boxing club. 
what was the sort of atmosphere on the trip like? Because, I don't know, from, from the pictures it seemed a little bit thick of it to me, a little bit awkward ministerial visit. There was quite a thick of it moment when we went to this boxing club in Dagenham with John Crudders, who is the local MP there, um, where they posed wearing these boxing gloves. Um, but the idea, you know, the good intentions are there. Something that's interesting about the boxing club is that um, it unites um, a community that was actually you know, under a lot of pressure from the BMP not so long ago. And so that's quite an interesting parallel to draw with these communities, particularly more along the East Coast, where UKIP are taking hold. And actually, um, our young voters are becoming quite interested in them. In Thurrock, I think it's something like 35% of young people have said that if they vote, they're going to vote for UKIP there. Um, so that it is an interesting parallel. So there was a point to the visit um, but yes, I know what you mean. Those yes. pictures are sometimes ill-advised. <laughs> <laughs> so um, looking beyond just Labour, um, George, you've written today about this. Um, we've all heard it, this perception that, uh, oh, well, Labour and Tories, they're all just the same. What's the point? Why should I vote for either or at all? Um, you've written in your column in the magazine that actually they're not the same and this perception is very harmful. Um, tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so as you say, the charge you're the same is when you, is one that's heard more often now than than for many elections. Uh, and the irony of that, as I say in the piece, is that the ideological distance between the parties is greater than at any time since the 1992 election, and possibly earlier still. I mean, there are significant differences between them on tax, on the markets, on the EU, and yet uh, this charge you're the same is still thrown in their faces, and and. The reason for that, I think, is because it's not, uh, in most cases, about policy, it's about culture. That when people say you're all the same, they don't mean Labour and the Tories will have identical manifestos, um, but the way they speak, the way they look, the way they act, the way they do politics, they are part of a shared Westminster culture. What I say is is the political equivalent of the Eton Wall game or something. Mm. I see. So it's more about the fact that, um, we've talked about this for the last for five years now that Nick Clegg and David Cameron, although they belong to different parties, are from a similar social class, a similar background, all this kind of stuff. That's that's what people mean when they're saying Exactly the that. Same. And it's an issue of perception. So I, I quote a, a focus group finding um, from a report Policy Exchange did, which found that uh, voters in the group thought Ed Miliband went to Eton. Uh, Of course, he went to a a comprehensive school, but it's the assumption that he's the leader of a political party. He must have been to public school. Mm. And Anoush, how do you do you see a a way out of that for the parties? Is there a way they can communicate beyond that or is is this it now till the election? Um, It's quite difficult for them because even if they do try and do politics differently, which is something Ed Miliband um, has spoken about quite a lot this parliament, but I don't think has quite managed to achieve. um, They have these other parties that people are comparing them to now. So UKIP, who very much position themselves as outside the Westminster elite, and the Green Party um, that you know, makes itself look look like quite a grassroots movement, which in many ways it is. And then you have the SNP in Scotland as well. So I think even if the parties do try and start doing politics differently, it's going to be quite a futile mission because um, people who want to vote for something different have that offer. And that's been the big story this week, hasn't it? The the, the Greens surge in the polls, the fact that they've, they've polled 10 more in some cases. Um, this is something we've been sort of talking about and looking at for a while. Is this just the polls catching up? Is this a flash in the pan? What do we think, George? Well, I think it's clear they've had a boost from David Cameron demanding that they be included in the debates mm. and the um, and the sense that they're railing against the establishment because they've been shut out 
Um, and now it's joined UKIP and Scotland as one of the big what ifs of the general election. That's how you how the Greens perform will potentially have a very significant impact on in a, in a close election. And that's less because of the, the seats they'll win. I expect that Caroline Lucas will hold on in Brighton now. Uh, there are only two others which people think they could conceivably win, which are Bristol West and Norwich South. But the key will be what they what they do to the, the Labour vote in Labour Tory marginals and the Lib Dem vote in Labour in Lib Dem Tory uh, marginals. Um, because if they split the left in both cases, then it becomes much easier for, for the Tories to say, hang on, as the, as the single largest party. And this is why one of the messages that Labour will push very strongly will be, you know, don't don't risk waiting for the Greens because you'll end up with another five years of David Cameron in Downing Street, um, which which is perfectly true. And you can make the usual arguments of tactical voting. But I think the key is to uh, make a positive offer to uh, to voters to inspire them to vote for Labour rather than just the sense, well, we've got to vote for them to stop the Tories getting in, because actually the, the old tribal loyalties are far weaker than they used to be. And people are looking at, at new options, people Especially, especially the young. I mean, the Greens are in second place, joint second place with the Tories among young people, um, and and making a, a, a sort of cynical, self-interested appeal to them to vote for you isn't enough. And this comes back to where we started with young people and getting them to vote. I know, Anish, you have written a profile of the constituency that Natalie Bennett, the Green Party leader, is standing in, Hoban and St Pancras, which is which I don't think she has much chance of winning, right, but is distinguished by having a very large student and therefore young population. Mm. Uh, what did you find there? Um, well, it does work in the Greens' favour that there's lots of students there, but the problem with students is registration. So this is the big thing that parties like the Greens and Labour are very concerned about because students could, you know, uh, could substantially help their chances. So what they're doing is they're going round universities and schools and making sure that, that young people at least register to vote. Um, and it's National Registration Day, Voter Registration Day at the beginning of February. So I think we'll see a lot more activity around then to get these young people on the register. Well, thank you very much, both of you. Ian Steadman is now going to tell us about big news in the world of the internet, which is that one of the founders of 4chan... The founder. The founder, the only founder, has left the website. Yes, 4chan is a website which... Um, has it when it's in the news it's in the news for very bad reasons it tends to be but it's also a website which um has had possibly an immeasurable effect on how internet culture has formed over the last decade um 4chan is a website that it's it's a it's a message board is what it is it was um this the guy who founded it is a guy called chris pool he's uh currently only 25 or 26 so he's still got a lot way ahead of him now that he's <laughs> stepping down from it. But he founded it when he was 15. Uh, he was just living in his parents' house in uh, Brooklyn in New York. Um, and he pretty much just, he actually straight up ripped off a website called 2chan. There was a <laughs> popular website in Japan called 2chan where uh, people would come together and talk about anime and manga. And he was really into anime as well. So he got the source code for the 2chan website, ran the bits that were still in Japanese through Google Translate, and then just put it up on his own server, and that was 4chan. And the thing that's, that makes 4chan strange is that everyone kind of posts anonymously. Yeah. It's, there are several, it's, a, it's like a forum, so there are several sub-forums within it um, that generally, it started out as an anime uh, discussion site, and then there was random, and there was other stuff. But 4chan quickly gave rise to what's now known as Chan culture, and in turn 
uh, things like Anonymous and Gamergate. Um, 4chan is the site of the birth of many of the internet's memes, like Rickrolling started there. Uh, half the sort of stupid acronyms and things that you'll see people use, like Law and Ruffle, probably got popularized there more than anywhere else. Um, if, if you've seen a meme, then it probably started on 4chan. 4chan might actually be responsible for the word meme becoming the word that we use to describe memes. Mm. Like, it's... The, the way that internet culture has formed, as dumb and as ridiculous as it is, is in large part a reflection of what people are like on 4chan. And some pretty horrible stuff has oh, horrible begun stuff on too. there as well. Yeah, yeah uh, 4chan is... Something that defines Chan culture is an absolutist belief in free speech, which uh, comes up against the law and morality quite often when people share... Um, like, when there was a huge hack of celebrity... Uh, uh, in- Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Personal images last late last year. 4chan was one of the main sites where people were disseminating those images. Um, images of child abuse have been frequently posted on 4chan throughout its whole existence. Um, there are people issue death threats at each other all the time. Um, the, the practice of swatting um, might have originated there as well. Um, swatting, we should explain. Yes, is. Um, SWAT teams in America being, you know, armed police who go and respond to like hostage situations. So what you do is, if you have an argument with someone that you dislike on the internet, you find out where they live, and then you call the police and say that someone's holding someone hostage with a gun there. And the SWAT team will, in standard practice, they'll storm the building, throwing in like flashbangs and smoke grenades and stuff, and they might even shoot someone. People have been killed out of by this mm. um and it's uh become a favored tactic and it also kind of makes sense as well because uh on 4chan as i said everyone posts anonymously like revealing someone's real identity on 4chan is like the greatest sin yeah it's the it, that's yeah. the ultimate escalation yeah isn't it? so yeah. like the ultimate act of retaliation is to reveal their identity to the police and then let them take care of it um and that and that in turn also has its own weird sort of code of ethics on 4chan where as I say, posting sort of images of child abuse can be justified as an act of free speech, but revealing the identity of someone who's posting those images is the gravest sin against ethics. It's a strange, strange place, and it can terrify a lot of people who aren't used to it. As you can always see when stuff like the anonymous movement goes after someone that uh, doesn't know what's happened to them, or Gamergate, which is the most sort of recent expression of that. So we've established it's been a massive and pervasive influence over the internet. Uh, the fact that this guy's its founder is now yeah. stepping back, what does that mean? Well, this, it's it's interesting. He's uh, He wrote this blog post yesterday talking about it, and um, he, he said that, I mean, Fortran, he, it's 11 and a half years old. All that time, it's basically just been this one guy uh, making sure that the servers are running, um, making sure that... I think there's there's a guy... There's one coder that he asked occasionally to help him out, but it's pretty much just him. But over the last two years, he's started asking 
um, moderators and other volunteers, because the site is like basically volunteers apart from him uh, to step up. Uh, people that like it sounds like there's a team that's in place to keep it going. So four chance probably going to stay exactly the same. Um, what he's he hasn't said what he's going to do next. Um, he says that he might return one day as an as an anon, um, mm. as an anonymous poster, which is everyone else. But um, we wouldn't know because it's anonymous. Uh, and also, as I said, he's still only like twenty four or twenty six, so he has the whole like everything ahead of him. He's still the age that most people are when they're only just starting their first uh, tech startup. So, yeah. so has he tried to make any money out of this website? To the extent that you can run the website off it and stuff, and he's managed to make some money off it. I mean, it's not the most lucrative website in the world relative to its influence and infamy. Um, I mean, it is an extremely well-read website. It's it's, gen- it's usually in the top thousand websites worldwide. At times, it's been in the top like hundred or top fifty, depending on whatever it's doing that day. Be it, um, I don't know, like Reddit, which is uh, also has inherited some of the same Chan culture things. There are good bits of 4chan as well, which can kind of throw you. Like they might hear about a World War Two veteran who is dying, who's died, and he, no one's going to his funeral, and so they'll send like loads of flowers to it, or like those people will turn up, and you're like, oh, maybe they're all right. And then the next week they'll be doing what they did when Mountain Dew wanted people to vote on a new flavor. And the name of a new flavor of Mountain Dew, and they got Hitler did nothing wrong to the top of the pole. So there are, you know, it's it's kind of a, it's a hard thing to rein in. And the team that's going to take over, um, if they want to keep it the same, that's fine. But if they want to do anything else with it, they're going to have a challenge on their hands because the things that make people want to advertise on a site like that, uh, they don't want to be associated with a lot of things 4chan does. So that's a problem. They want popularity and they want traffic, but they don't want... Yeah, you don't want to be associated with, with 4chan, <laughs> really. Yeah. Thanks very much, Ian. The New Statesman's culture editor, Tom Gatti, is now going to tell us a bit about the new BBC adaptation of Wolf Hall. Uh, hotly anticipated, and I think I'm right in saying widely appreciated. What did you make of it, Tom? I was actually uh, slightly less effusive in my feelings towards the TV adaptation of Wolf Hall um, than most of the critics that I've read so far. Um, I think it's one of those things where... Uh, it's tempting to slightly reserve judgment um, until you're sort of two or three episodes in. It was it was very very atmospheric, um, very dark, which is nice to see in a in a historical drama. Mm. You don't it doesn't have any of that sort of glossy Tudors style lighting when they're when they're out on the Thames at night. It's really really dark, which it presumably it would have been. been. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so the 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 historical period of it felt very, very accurate, um, very atmospheric. Rylance is obviously a fantastic performer. All the performances were good. But um, it. my one problem with it is that it felt uh, almost like it played, it played its cards a bit too early in terms of um, painting Thomas Cromwell as this complex character, um, it seemed to be working very hard to make him quite sympathetic. So you get a lot of his relationship with his wife and children. Um, 
spoiler alert, his wife and children die. Um, it's all a spoiler. <laughs> it all happened hundreds of years ago. Um, which is very, very moving in the books and in the stage adaptation, but is um, pushed to the background. So it happens sort of off stage. Mm. The The TV adaptation made quite a big deal of showing that, I think because they're anxious to make you really care about Cromwell um, and see his human side. Um, and I'm just a little bit, I'm a little bit anxious about how that is going to play out. I felt that in the stage adaptation, um, Cromwell's humanity really came out and you, you, your sympathy for him did develop, but it sort of happened in the background without you really noticing it. I I share your concern there, actually. And obviously, we've only had the first of six episodes to go out every week. So we'll see how it goes. But I felt, especially the way the, the, the books, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, the way they work, is it's all about Cromwell's sort of interiority, his interior thoughts. So you see everything, you, you feel everything that he thinks, and you find yourself in sympathy with him, kind of in spite of some of his impulses. And I guess that wasn't really there so much, because they've as you say, plunge straight into trying to make him feel like he's your friend, he's your guide through this world. Yes, and it's it's interesting for those of us who've read the books and seen the plays mm. and are now watching the TV adaptations. I'm trying to think of another example where all those three things have happened in such a relatively short period of time. I can't time. think of one myself. I yeah, um, and um, it really it requires a a real recalibration with each with each format um because screen is a more I, I i absolutely love the stage adaptations but screen is a quieter and and should be a more um introspective medium as in that it allows to sh to show the interiority of the characters more than the stage where the dialogue has to keep rolling basically um so it was it was interesting to see that um i think the having said all that the um the performances were were really striking and striking just to see a whole cast of different actors take on these these roles that you've become very attached to i mean i spent the first half hour really just trying to get rid of ben miles who played cromwell so brilliantly yes. in the stage adaptation and, and adjust to rylance um Yes, I'm very interested to see what Anton Lesser does as well. He's a he's a favourite actor of mine, so I was, I was excited to see him in it. And it's, I don't know, it, it is interesting when you've, um, as you say, when you've had now two adaptations of a novel within such a short space of time. Um, but I suppose we shouldn't really be surprised that that's the case. Hilary Mantel is a sensation. These books were a sensation. They won unprecedented numbers of prizes. Uh, do you think there's something about her writing that lends itself to adaptation that's encouraging people to go for this? I wouldn't have said so when I first read the book, I have to say. I, I wouldn't have said this is prime, you know, this is prime for a um, high-profile BBC series and a, and a West End stage hit. Um, because the first book particularly is, uh, as a lot of readers and critics noticed at the time, is it's not... It's not immediately an easy read it has this very sort of dense interior style there's lots of sort of pronouns going on and mixed pronouns um it's it doesn't immediately scream kind of on on-screen drama but now that now that this process has unraveled you can see that 
in a way, all the material is there for for cracking. I think it's less Mantel's style and more that it comes with a great sort of bunch of historical baggage, which is easy to sell to a um, to a film company or to a TV company because you've got you know if you haven't read the books, you still know that you've got a great story of Henry VIII and his wives. And it's been interesting to me to see how the press around the pre-publicity press around Wolf Hall has very much focused on Henry VIII, even though he's sort of, he's not the main character. And, and that's he, and not he's the barely primary. in the first, yeah. the first episode. Yeah. And we'll see what happens later. But yeah, he's There's barely there. There's just been lots of glossy pictures of, of Damien Lewis sort of posing in his cod piece. Um, <laughs> and, um, and it was, but it was pleasing to see that the, um, the adaptation actually stuck to its guns and said, yes, this is a story about Cromwell. Hmm. That will change over the course of it but um they haven't fallen so in love with damien lewis that they've sidelined the character of Cromwell, which would be very upsetting indeed. that would be upsetting yes well thanks very much tom we'll see how it develops thanks for listening to the new statesman podcast with me caroline crampton our producer today was anna leskovich our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and you can find more details and all our back episodes on newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>